Hi, this is Bob Rosakis. You're listening to the Batman Family Reunion on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 16 of the Batman Family Reunion, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Paul Ken, one of your hosts, and with me, as always, is my co-host and bat buddy, Sean Man Bat Myers. What's new, Sean? Mmm, I just had some ice cream sandwiches with great-grandpa Neil and his daughter, my grandma, Avon, and they were reminiscing about just how much space she had in her apartment. So much room. How are you, Paul? I'm great, but you have to help me. You gotta hide me from cousin Arnold. He keeps wanting me to do a workout with him, but when we do, he calls me a girly man. Anyway, Sean, why don't you remind our listeners what our show is all about? Batman Family was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 1978 and then rescued Detective Comics from the DC implosion by continuing as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin, along with reprints, before morphing into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as the Huntress, Commissioner Gordon, Man Bat, and even Ragman and the Demon. Both of your hosts collected and read these comics as they came out and they're excited to share their love of this era at the Batman Family Reunion. Let's get into issue 16 of Batman Family. All right. So this issue, number 16, has a cover date of February and March 1978. And on sale, according to our favorite website, Mike's Amazing World of Comics, in November of 1977, has 48 pages and 60 cents, which has been the standard format for a little while. But hold on to your hats there. There are two stories, both new, of course, and a cover by Jim Aparo, but a couple things to note. This is the last Aparo cover in Batman Family proper. He might have done some in Detective. I haven't looked recently, but it's the last Batman Family proper cover by Jim Aparo. But even more significantly, this is the last 60 cent issue because starting with number 17, we are going dollar comics. So watch out for your hat next month, everybody. But let's stick with this one. Number 16, what do you think of the cover, Sean? I like this cover. I like this cover a lot. So with Aparo, like I'm very middle of the road about Aparo. Like I, I don't love, love, love him. I absolutely do not hate him whatsoever. But I like this cover a lot. The mirrors are great. I guess they're not technically mirrors because Robin's R isn't backwards. So, so that was my main thing about this. What is this thing he's looking at? That's <laughs> my, my question. My only complaint with the cover and with the title of the story, it totally gives away like any kind of <laughs> mystery about this story because it literally says like I've beaten Robin and Batgirl in two of my identities. Next, I'll finish them off in my in my third one. <laughs> so th that, that that's maybe the negative. The poses are great. Like on the very left hand mirror or screen or whatever we're gonna call it, it's the Zalamajak coming up to Robin, and Robin is like absolutely terrified on yeah. his face. Yeah, great facial expressions. Great cheekbone highlighting, contouring right there. It's the one to the very left. Batgirl is like a little bit afraid, not as afraid as Robin. The middle pose, its he almost looks like a superhero yeah. instead of a villain with, with his pose. Arms akimbo, as they yes. say. <laughs> yeah, no, I love this cover. Yeah, It's spaced out really well. I think it's nice. I really like it a lot. The two things I was going to say, it gives away the story. And because first time I said the same thing, oh, it's a mirror. And then I'm like, wait a minute, it's not a mirror because, but he's watching these things happen, but they can't both be happening at the same time because it's the same guy. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so is it a poster? Is it a recording? Is he just vamping in front of it? But 
who cares? Great facial expressions, body language, definitely makes you want to buy it and certainly much better than the last issue. Well, I always thought of it as a mirror or yeah. a screen, but now that you say poster, maybe these are posters and he gets his posters from the same place that Killer Moth and Cavalier <laughs> get their posters for yeah, their that hideout. Could that could be. We will post the image of the cover as well as some additional pages from each of the stories in our family portrait gallery on the network's website. Paul, remind our listeners where that is. That is fireandwaterpodcast.com. So normally we would jump right into the first story, but you know, hey, we break format all the time. So we have a special Batman family feature. Since the last time Dula Dent appeared in Batman Family was way back in issue nine, the startling secret of the devilish daughters, we thought it would be appropriate to give a little mini synopsis of what she has been doing over in the Teen Titans. In issue number 46 of the Teen Titans, which went on sale the month after Batman Family number nine, where she said, I discovered your identity, Dick, because I wanted to join the Teen Titans. The Titans have reformed an issue or two ago and are discussing where they're going to have a new HQ. Because that's what you did in the Bronze Age. You had to set up your headquarters <laughs> when you were a teen. So they were discussing and arguing about where it would be. Spoiler, we know where it's going to be on Groovy Long Island, the hip hop and Gabriel's horn since it's written by our bat cousin and island native, Bob Rizakis. But anyway, Robin introduces the Joker's daughter to his pals and says she wants to be a member. They argue about it Marvel style, but Wonder Girl points out that it'd be great to have another, quote, pretty face around. But the debate is postponed and Dula gets to help out anyway on the mission against the Fiddler. Unfortunately, her big contribution was she gets to be carried by Aqualad at the direction of Robin, who's trying to recreate a, quote, crime scene. Aqualad starts to make a crack about her weight, which I thought was funny, and she shuts him down. But I've always questioned that because in that tailored suit, she was awfully skinny. But she does get to use her gadgets and they take down the Fiddler. And in a Gabriel's Horn causality super loop, we see that the Titans are reading a classified ad in a newspaper about a property for rent in Farmingdale, Long Island, quote, suitable for a restaurant or nightclub or a superhero hangout. So in number 47, all of a sudden, it seems like Dula has ESP powers out of nowhere. She has hunches about a trio of villains deviously stealing rare stamps. I guess that's one up from collecting comic books. Anyway, <laughs> subsets of the Titans fight them a couple times while the others work on fixing up Gabriel's horn. In full costume, I might add, out on the ladder <laughs> with the hammers. I love that. The Titans get trounced mainly because the powers of the bad guys seem to be opposite of what Dula said they were. So some of them, particularly the argumentative Speedy, think that Joker's daughter is setting them up. So the Hudson University classmates, Dula and Dick, go out alone to investigate her last hunch while the others go and fight the baddies. But it turns out there are two sets of baddies with opposite powers. Twins, you might say. Hmm, who could be behind this? So we cut to the Rosakis roundup there and see that Dick and Duella were set up. They are now the prisoners of Two-Face. Seems he wants to kill the offspring of the two people he hates the most, Batman's son and the Joker's daughter. That is, until Dula blows his mind by calling him Daddy. By the time 48 rolls around, Robin and Joker's daughter are still tied up, and Two-Face sort of comes to grips with having a daughter. Seems his wife Gilda took off when Dula was a baby, and he's blocked it out of his memory. But Big Bad Harv monologues away about his evil plan while Robin frees himself and Joker's daughter. And of note of this issue, we do get the intro of the Bumblebee, which is exciting. 
And yeah, the Titans stopped the twin bombs Two-Face was sending to Gotham in New York. But by the end of the issue, Dula says she's not going to go by Jokesy or Jokey or JD or any of the nicknames the Titans want to call her any longer. She steps out into the center of the renovated Gabriel's horn in a brand new costume and is now the Harlequin. The best thing about number 49 is that it contains the grand opening of Gabriel's horn. Dula and Donna get to greet all the Saturday Night Fever types in civvies. But when Roy decides to come on to Dula, she puts him in his place. It was only a few hours ago he was thinking she was a traitor. She hasn't forgiven him yet. But she's proved herself and bonds with Mal, at least. And if the disco wasn't 1970s enough, the fun is interrupted when a gang crashes the party on skateboards. <laughs> These rocket rollers wreck the disco and get away. But we do find out that Bumblebee is Mal's girlfriend, Karen. Because that's the only other black person in the story. Anyway, Mal gets a new costume too, designed by a reader, no less. So now he won't be Guardian or plain old Mal anymore, but Hornblower. But this identity doesn't even last till the end of the issue since Mal loses his horn in a dangling plot thread that I don't think was ever resolved. The Titans have a public introduction of Harlequin, Bumblebee, and Hornblower as their new members at the Long Island Beach Theater for charity, and of course have a rematch with the Rocket Rollers. This time the Titans make short work of them, of course. Number 50 is a special issue with a great Rich Buckler cover, and we get the introduction of Titans West. Dula and Dick are taking the Long Island Railroad back to Farmingdale with Donna and Wally after showing their friends around Hudson University. Dula wants to know if Wally and Donna want to transfer there, but Donna wants to go to the West Coast. Remember how Bat Cousin Bob told us he was going to move her to become part of Titans West? And Wally doesn't think he could afford it. But then the train is derailed, seriously, by elevating it off the tracks. The Titans save all the passengers but fall to Captain Calamity. Dula frankly doesn't get much to do after that as the rest of the issue is set up for Titans West. We see Betty Kane, tennis player, aka Bat Dash Girl, Gar Logan Beast Boy as a movie stuntman and built-in special effects guy, Hawk and Dove, Charlie Parker, the Golden Eagle, and Lilith and Nark. 51 is again a lot of setup for Titans West and we find out the real bad guy, Mr. Esper, is tapping into Lilith's mental powers to create these disasters. We're up to over a dozen characters now and all Dula gets to do is use her sticky bubble gum to bring down Captain Calamity, who is just Mr. Esper's dupe. And all this happens just as the island of Long Island moves out to sea. So where's Hercules to drag it back when you need him? And breaks the Throg's neck bridge in half. But we do get the money shot at the end as the Titans West meet Titans East, and we know we will have big finish next issue. And then in 52, of course, there's a Marvel-style fight between Titans East and Titans West until Donna breaks it up with her lasso. The Titans then mix up the teams to go on assignment. But ladies' man Dick chooses to go to the jail to investigate what Captain Calamity knows, but he takes just Dula and Betty in tow. As Robin talks to the warden of the jail, Betty and Dula make small talk, and Betty makes it known to her that now that she's back in costume, she is going to partner up with Robin. To which Dula gives a <laughs> There goes back cousin Bob setting up the love triangle which, of course, never materializes. But then it seems Captain Calamity has escaped. The world's second greatest detective tracks him down pretty quickly and with the help of his two girlfriends, recaptures him and finds out that Captain Calamity is actually the same guy as Mr. Esper. Robin explains his brilliant deduction to the rest of the Titans over pizza. I think this is the first time that we ever see the Titans eating pizza. And <laughs> both groups get together for a great portrait photo. The end. And that really was the end, unfortunately, because the last issue, 53 was basically the secret origin of the Teen Titans, which was long before Dula's time. She does make an appearance on the last page as the Titans break up again as she's on the back of Robin's bike heading back to Hudson U. 
So we see well, while Dula slash Joker's daughter slash Harlequin has been missing from Batman family, she's been hanging around Robin a lot with the Teen Titans this whole time. So, Sean, any comments you want to make about the Teen Titans run of Dula Dent? I read a lot of those issues, like, when they came out Mm -hmm. currently with Batman Family. I loved that stuff that was happening in Batman Family was reflected in Teen Titans. They would talk about it back and forth. I love Bob Rosakis for that. I love those Titan stories. They're not good. <laughs> and, and the art, the art is such a mixed bag. Like that yeah. last issue. Oh my God. I love that art. If that art could have been happening. Yeah. yeah there's a lot of Don Heck in it. Yeah. The thing I wish I was probably too, way too timid to ask Bob Rosakis, but like he was setting up Titans East and Titans West in 50 and then it's canceled with 53. I know sales figures came in later, but I would think they would have some idea that the book wasn't doing that well. So to put all that work in for kind of nothing. I had the same question. This is a little before the DC implosion because that's this is coming out in November of 77. The DC implosion mm-hmm. is that January of 78. It was canceled before that. So sales must have been weak. And we know the sales were weak on T-Titans generally because people were criticizing George Perez and Marv Wolfman for taking it on because they're like, oh, this isn't going to last but six issues. And yeah. then, of course, it becomes DC's biggest book. So maybe he thought by bringing in all these additional characters, it would boost sales. That's the only thing I can think of. But yeah, you would think, especially he's in the office every day in the production department, he would know what the sales figures are. Maybe if we get him on again, we'll have to ask. Maybe our listeners know something. If any bat cousin knows any more about that, just let us know. I think the time for this has probably passed, but I would love for like, even if it was like a six issue miniseries or telling like quote unquote, like new stories set in the 70s with Titans East and Titans West. I would love that. Although I guess nostalgia is probably about 20 years behind, you know, like, like in the 70s, we had like the 1950s shows with Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley. So generally it's like 20 years after is when like the nostalgia wave will hit. So yeah. we're way past that. Way past that. <laughs> we're 20 years past the nostalgia 20 years ago. Wave. <laughs> so I don't know that that story is going to happen. And I know there was, oh, I forget what it is. I think it was like a DC Black Label series. There were like serious looks about the character. And I I know that Mal and Karen have one. Yeah, the other history of the DC universe. The other history. That's that's yeah, yeah, very good. Written by John Ridley. I like that a lot. Now, obviously, I would like a series told about that, and it could be lighthearted or deep. I definitely don't want some horrible, dark look at the Titans and how like don't want Tom King writing it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But I would love that, and especially like to really like delve into disco and all of that pet rock and all of the like the trends and stuff like that. Like I I would love. You know who would be good to write it is that guy Mark Russell who wrote the Wonder Trend, yeah, he would yeah. be a good choice to write it. We do once in a while still get a swinging Teen Titans story set in the 60s, but we yeah. don't get this group. Again, if anybody has any more information on that, we'd love to know. From now on, during the Batman Family Podcast, we know that Mal and Karen are back in Farmingdale tending the Gabriel's War. <laughs> And basically forgotten about him because they do come back at one point. He's like, you just started this new Teen Titans. You never even asked me to come talk to you. Yeah. Okay. Now we are going to move on to the next segment, which is fantastic. It's called The Bat Timeline. And in this segment, we're going to take a look at the other titles that were published this month and what the rest of the Batman family was doing at that time. And all of this is thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. And these are comics that were on sale in November of 1977. If you guys haven't, used the newsstand feature on Mike's Amazing World. And we don't get paid to do this. It sounds like an ad, but it's not. It's just so much fun to go back and look to see. That's how I figured out that Batman Family was the first comic that I had ever purchased for myself 
off of the off of the sand. It's it's really neat. So the bat related titles this month start off with Action Comics number four eighty. It has a guest appearance by Batman and a metric ton of other characters. <laughs> the cover is Superman, and he is trying to stop the sun or a planet or something from striking the Earth. And it's called Amazo's Big Breakthrough. And in Batman this month, it's number 296. So that story of the many deaths of the Batman is over now. And we have a Batman versus Scarecrow issue, which I don't think the story is very memorable, but the cover is terrific. You've got a giant figure of the Scarecrow menacing Batman who's running away towards us, the reader, and looking terrified, which you don't get a lot of cover of Batman looking scared, but of course it's the Scarecrow, right? It's a very striking cover by Sal Amendola, which surprised me, inked by Alan Milgram. You know, I thought it was Rich Buckler when I first looked at it, but it's a, it's a terrific cover. I gotta go read this one. It's a great cover. Definitely look it up. And kind of the neat thing about that is, at the time, most comic book covers had at the very least cover copy but especially like the characters talking and this is much more like a poster you know quote-unquote cover that is much more prominent now yeah it's a beautiful image i love it so there is no brave and the bold this month but there is dc special series number eight and it is a the brave and the bold special starring batman and sergeant rock and dead man it was neat uh i was just recently on digest cast to pick out some dead man stories and all of my stories were dead man teaming up and i thought about including this how it is a 48 page (laughs) taking up too much of the digest (laughs) right it is a good story and it was on my long list i didn't make it to the short list but it is the long list and it's really neat and of course you know i'm a huge fan of dead man so of course i had to talk about that (laughs) in detective comics number 475 the classic Engelhart rogers run continues this is Maybe the most notable issue, it is Batman versus the Joker in The Laughing Fish. Sean is making fish sounds and fish faces. Uh, this, of course, is adapted into an episode of the animated series. I actually met Steve Englehart a number of years ago at a show, and I got him to sign my copy. So that's pretty exciting. Obviously, I don't think I need to tell our listeners much about The Laughing Fish. The next story is The Justice League of America, number 151. And of course, Batman stars in that. It's a great cover. It's called The Unluckiest League of All. And <laughs> Amos Fortune has Wonder Woman tied up to kind of like a big roulette wheel, but then it's also kind of shooting out colors, every color of the spectrum, and then in each color bar, there's a white outline of a Justice League face in pain. It's a fantastic, and I love like bright, super colorful covers. The next book we're going to talk about is Super Friends number 10, and it is called The Monster Menace. It's a fantastic cover. It's the Super Friends in a Cavern. And they have opened up a treasure chest and it's glowing like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. But framed around them, you see monsters that are looking at them. This is a great story, but the best thing about this story is it was reprinted in the Best of DC Digest number three. And I got to talk about this digest on Digest Cast with Rob. So go and listen to my Dead Man Digest and go and listen to my <laughs> Super Friends Digest and talk about it in the comments. <laughs> Sean is just vamping this issue, this episode. <laughs> Next up is Teen Titans number 53. We just talked about that, the last issue of The Secret Origin. Well, and the neat thing about this story is I have a 12-episode podcast talking about this issue. No, no, no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But it is funny that the very last issue of Teen Titans, they reveal The Secret Origin, which had never been told before this. And it almost makes me think of 
Justice Society, how there was never a secret origin for Justice Society until that fantastic issue. Yeah. Oh gosh, I, I can't even. DC Special Series. DC Special Series 29. I'm yeah. horrible with issue numbers, but it's that great Neil Adams cover, but yeah. the Joe Staten art. Oh my yeah. God, I, I yeah. love that issue. Yeah. yeah, me too. That's a fantastic. Okay, and the last issue that we're going to talk about for the newsstand of the Batman family appearances is World's Finest Comics number 249 because it has this great cover where the Phantom Stranger is pointing his finger at a demonic Superman and he's about to attack Batman and Batman's cradling someone and anytime phantom stranger shows up that's great because it's a dollar comic you also get stories from green hour and black canary will the costume make the hero creeper moon lady and the monster and wonder woman a fire in the sky that is a jim apparel cover right there yeah i love world's finest dollar comics and adventure comics dollar comics are just the best sean what else did you get this month and i think i know what's first on your list (laughs) yes i do go alphabetically and it might even still be number one on the list the all-new collector's edition number c54 and everyone knows what that one is so we'll move on to the next title I even just said I'm horrible with issue numbers. That is Superman versus Wonder Woman with that wonderful uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, cover. Of course, it brings up the issue that maybe Superman isn't really super cool because Superman versus Wonder Woman, Superman versus Shazam, Superman (laughs) versus Muhammad Ali, Superman versus Spider-Man. So what's the common denominator in all of these things? So I don't know. I love this issue when it came out, set in World War II, Mm -hmm. basically Earth 2 Superman, Earth 2 Wonder Woman. It was to capitalize on the Wonder Woman TV show, which was set in World War II at that time. Fantastic art, just all around. Great, great book. What else you got? My next issue is Archie Giant Series Magazine number 467, and it is Sabrina's Christmas Magic. We've talked about this, how I love Christmas comics. There are one, two, three, four, five, seven stories in here. No, I don't know that all seven are Christmas related, but like I love Christmas comics. Like it was always, it was always so great. That's true. It is November of 1977. Very good. My next issue is. Flintstones Christmas Party number one. <laughs> and this is a treasury book. Yay! A dollar twenty-five, but well worth it. And of course, it's like a ton of Hanna-Barbera characters. So you don't just get Flintstones. I'm going to name off a couple that I can see on the cover. So the Jetsons, Dino, Top Cat, Snagglepuss. McGilla Gorilla's on there. McGilla Gorilla, Huckleberry Hound. So yes, so that would be another Christmas Yogi Bear. That I would love. Yeah. Oh, Adam Ant. I love that Adam Ant. <laughs> I love the Hanna-Barbera characters. So, so do you actually have this one? I do not own this issue. That's a cool cover for sure. The next one I'm going to get is Showcase number 97. All right. That is the appearance of Power Girl, her first solo appearance. Yeah, I, I had that one too on my list. I remember buying the revamped Showcase, being pretty excited about it. This was her first solo and there were three issues of the new Doom Patrol prior to this. And it's a pretty iconic cover of Power Girl. It's before she had the boob window. She's yeah. got this to straight cut across the neck but it's pretty terrific image of her by joe staten for sort of smashing through covers of all-star comics into her own stories the next book i'm gonna get is spidey super stories number 31 and the title of this issue is star jaws and there is a very very star wars inspired cover spidey is holding up a lightsaber (laughs) with moon dragon in a princess leia pose and behind them is Darth Doom. Dr. <laughs> Doom. I'm, so, I'm sorry, Dr. Doom. And you didn't know, Moon Dragon's costume is much less revealing than the one in the regular comics. <laughs> yeah. 
the next issue I actually did buy off of the stands okay. when it was new. And it is what if number seven. Mm -hmm. And that is what if someone else besides Spider-Man had been bitten by the radioactive spider. And you had Flash Thompson, you had Colonel John Jameson, J. Jonah's son, and you had Betty Brant, who was AKA Spider-Girl. This is a neat book. I wasn't so much steeped in Marvel at the time, so I very, very seldom got What If. Mm -hmm. But maybe like a year ago, I bought those What If collections. They're just such great stories yeah. and re really long. They're very, very long. Good choice. That one's neat because I think if my memory serves, there are three vignettes, three different yes. stories, right? Yes. As yes. opposed to one long. Yeah, that, that's a good choice too. And I have a special story about my very last pick, Superman number 320. Now, this is always like what we would buy off of the newsstand. And Superman number 320, it's called The Absolute Power Play of the Parasite. And it has Superman holding back Solomon Grundy from stealing his cape above a suspended cable car kind of thing. Yeah. But the great thing is I didn't have to buy this issue because this comic book was in my stocking on Christmas morning. Oh, wow. Very cool. Every year, the first thing we would do, we would come downstairs. We had a real fireplace and it was brick against the wall. And then we had built in log holders. So we would stand on that and reach up and get our stocking. And inside the stock at the bottom was always an orange, which I always hated because <laughs> literally we had oranges in the refrigerator. So all mom did was put an orange in the stocking. But anyway, and it was also great if there were batteries in your stocking, because that means you got your Merlin or your microvision or whatever, you know, you, so you knew you got that. But I always had comics in my stocking and I loved that. Oh my God, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. Like how Rob has his mountain comics. I have my stocking comics, oh. which is yet another new pod. It's another new podcast that I am unveiling. <laughs> Look for it soon on the Fire and Water Network. Oh, that's a great story. I love that story. <laughs> what have you got, Paul? So uh, the ones that we didn't talk about, let me run through a couple notable things that came out this month. The first is Aquaman number 60. It's yet another amazing Jim Apparel cover with a pretty vicious Aquaman swearing that the scavenger won't live to hurt another one of his people. I don't really recall this particular story. It's shortly after the death of Aquababy, but it's a few months after that, so it's not talking about that. And it was Black Manta. The but man, you know, I've got to read this, whether it's on DC Universe or, or Dig It Out or, or whatever, but that's just a fantastic issue. I know I had those. In Captain America 218, we get the standard retelling of Captain America's origin, which comics had to do that every couple of years. They would retell the character's origins. I always liked those. I thought they were fun. They would usually try to bring a little something new to it, which is which is neat. Fantastic Four 191. Yet again, I keep calling out Fantastic Perez cover. Got the art of the Fantastic Four walking away. They break up again. Of course, they get back together. The beginning, I think, of the build up to number 200. Again, when I was this age, I was like, what? The Fantastic Four is breaking up? Which, of course, why they did it. So <laughs> I have a memory in my head of that. And then after all these great covers, I have to say my favorite cover of the month might be Flash number 258. Who could not buy this cover? You've got the Flash running towards us burning up you're seeing his decaying with his skull coming out of his mask years before crisis 
you know, we all associate that image with him sort of deteriorating in front of Batman in the crisis. But this is years before that. And it's got Green Lantern guest starring and they're fighting against Black Hand. I think that's my favorite cover of the month. Sean, you didn't mention, I was a little surprised, you didn't mention Man from Atlantis number one. I thought that would be up your alley. Did you watch that show? I know. I don't know that we watched it every week. Yeah, neither did I. I I remember Patrick Duffy. I remember the... The costume choices that I wholeheartedly agree with. Didn't he have like webbed hands? Something. I And he would like undulate. Undulate? Is that the word? Yeah. he would, yeah. 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 I don't, I seem to vaguely recall maybe having this comic. I know I recall watching it, but, and I remember thinking as a kid, why don't they just do Aquaman would be more interesting, but I, you yeah. know, you could, you know, if you're going to go to this trouble, do a recognizable character, but I really don't have any recollection of the, of the story or the character. So I'm sure among our bat, cousins somebody likes the man from atlantis and we'll get a long paragraph about that in the comments marvel team up 66 again claremont and burn classic mm. we've got spider-man and captain britain versus arcade in the murder world which shows up obviously in the x-men and that is it for me this month of the ones i had on my list fortunately though our pal richie rich has made a bit of a comeback this month <laughs> Right after after being down to six last month, which was highly disappointing, he's back up to eleven comics this month. Did you get eleven? Because there's Super Richie, not in the R's. There are eleven. Yes. <laughs> okay, we are consistent with our counting. Yeah, he is back on top. The market has swung around for Richie. Phew! Glad to hear that. <laughs> Sean, are we finally ready to get started on the first story? <laughs> yeah, let, let's let's start this episode. <laughs> okay, the first story is Fury of the Five-in-One Foe. It's starring Batgirl and Robin, and it guest stars Bat-Girl and the Harlequin. Uh, there are 24 pages written by Bob Rosakis, penciled by Don Heck, inked by John Salardo. This was later reprinted in Batgirl, The Bronze Age Omnibus, Volume 2 from 2019. Robin, the Bronze Age Omnibus hardcover from 2020, and Batman Arkham, Joker's Daughter 2018. Batgirl and Robin in The Fury of the Five-in-One Foe. Take a story that features the Harlequin's first solo mission with another hero, dogs, (laughs) train derailment, a gunfight, a hand grenade, a beauty pageant, a beauty pageant contestant losing her hair, (laughs) that hyphen girl, Jimmy Cotta, a complete abandonment of the U.S. government, a green wig, five villains seemingly guest starring from Dial H for Hero, and I love Dial H for Hero, a patented Rosakis recap, and Robin eating three hamburgers, and you have the best story ever presented in the pages of Batman Family. Except, who boy, it's not. Spoiler alert. This is my least favorite Batman family tale ever. <laughs> Next month, we're going to get five stories per issues because it goes up to dollar comics and my recaps have to be a lot shorter. So I'm going to start that right now. <laughs> Robin and Harlequin fight a bad guy. He steals something and gets away. Batgirl and Commissioner Gordon fight a bad guy. He steals something and gets away. Bat-Girl fights a bad guy. He steals something and gets away. His boots are green. <laughs> Robin and Batgirl do something in the House of Representatives and maybe a TV studio somewhere. Then they go back to the bad guy's trailer when they fight him using various devices he used in his guises. One of the few bright spots of the story. (laughs) Then Robin and Batgirl eat at Joe's and tell us that the guy, by the way, do we even know his name? 
I literally have both the physical issue and the DC Universe Infinite app in front of me right now, and I can't be bothered to look it up. Did all of this because of a rigged election? Hmm. Uh-oh. Plus switch? This issue was on the stands at Christmas time, so it robbed us of a fantastic <laughs> holiday story. Paul, I pray to God you love this story. Defend your story. The best part about this story is that it's got lots of characters in it. We got lots of Batman family characters. We got Commissioner Gordon, Betty Keane. We got Laurie. We got all the characters here, but it is kooky beyond belief and a little nonsensical. I'm sending out the shag alert to help me find my joy in this story. <laughs> because otherwise, I will have another 12-episode mini-series podcast talking about all the things I don't like. Batkin, if you love this issue, please make me turn my mind around. So there was a movie, Diana, about Princess Diana, and I watched it and didn't like it, but then someone pointed out it was supposed to be like a horror movie, and that did kind of change my mind around. So if you love this issue, tell me why you love it, because maybe you'll bring me around. I'll try to talk about things I like. The main point is that this guy, who I agree with you, I don't think we find out his name, which is hysterical, <laughs> lost an election at the local level, and then decided to mess up elected officials at five different levels. So he messes with a dog catcher, mayor, and then a sheriff, and then finally gets to the whole U.S. government, who then, if we thought it was something that Superman <laughs> was in on the, the bust last issue, who now has the president and the entire Congress pretend to resign to flush out this nameless guy. <laughs> I mean... Bob, I don't know what he was smoking this month. <laughs> I agree with you. The fun part was the fight at the end where Robin and Batgirl take yes. the guy out with his own equipment. Love it. That was kind of fun. Let's start walking through. If you look at page one, you know it's going to be odd because the first thing I noticed, hey, great. We get those Batgirl and Robin matching logos that we like and Martin does not. Okay, readers, one thing I like. Yes, there's one thing you like. So we get the, those logos. But if you look to the left of that, Don Heck... Once again, makes Robin look like he's eight years old. I think he really does, yeah. He's like five foot two standing next to Batgirl. Yeah. Batgirl looks pretty good, but Robin looks like he's eight or ten years old, and, and I don't get it. The guy has a chainsaw attached to his left hand. Okay, that's pretty scary, right? But he's cutting through a brick wall and can't be bothered to fight them at first because he's still cutting through the wall and he's got his back to them. And then he lets out dogs. It just starts in a strange place. I mean... This is New Carthage, right? Because Robin and the Harlequin are on patrol in the crime-ridden town of New Carthage. Yes. Right? The other thing is she's got a flying saucer, she calls it. And the sound effect of the flying saucer at the top of page two is Batarang. Oh my God, I didn't even notice that. I didn't even notice that. <laughs> the sound effect is not swish or move or anything. It was Batarang. <laughs> Thing. So maybe I, I maybe I thought that was product placement. I don't know what it is. You've got Robin being overconfident on the next couple pages. Oh, I take it back. The best part of the story after they get covered. The last page of this segment, uh, page six of the story, and I'm going to include this one. You mentioned Robin eating or Dick eating the three hot dogs. 
Hamburgers, yeah. Hamburgers. Lori is giving Dick the cold shoulder. She does not say a word for him. She is reading the newspaper. We're not going to count that as Gabriel's horn because they're always reading newspapers. Yeah, yeah. She is reading the newspaper on the other side of the table, and he is talking. Hey, don't get mad at me just because you know, I was hanging out with Dula. Hey, Lori. Hey, hey, Lori, can I have your hamburger? Grabs the hamburger off of her plate. She does not speak to him for the entire page, which I thought was hysterical. So I take it back. That's my favorite part. And actually, surprisingly, I do have something positive that I can say. I do like the quote-unquote dissolve of Laurie reading the Herald and then the Gotham Gazette, Batman, Rat, Nabs, Manhattan. Yeah, that's a nice transitional moment. So, okay, so I think we're up to two. Well, wait, you, you have to like this scene, this page six scene. Laurie giving him the cold shoulder. That's pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I think your eyes are a little colored by your dislike <laughs> well, of the rest of the story. That's a thing. I forget what episode it was where I talked about how Don Heck makes people look like flat cardboard. Yeah. I think the reason why I think that is because this thing of Dick where he's like eating this hamburger, he says, yuck, this is worse than cardboard. I think that put in my mind how like flat, I would not know that that was Dick Grayson. Now I'm not going to talk about everything I don't like about <laughs> this. You got to find your joy. I do have to point that out because that, that's the apex of hey, my not He might dog. not like the hamburger, but he puts it in the doggy bag to take home with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've all been that hungry. So that's one story point I do like, Albert is included, <laughs> is that sometimes we'll eat stuff we don't really like. <laughs> So I've turned my mind around. I now love the story. <laughs> okay. Then you've got the Batgirl chapter. Okay. And I'm sorry. I know I said I wasn't going to talk about the art, but every single cop is just sitting there staring blankly. None of them are reading a newspaper or talking to each other. Literally, it could be a story point that these were mannequins and that would be more believable. Okay, and now I will not talk anything more about what I don't like about this. I might have to include that panel because <laughs> you've got Barbara and Jim Gordon sitting in the train and they are surrounded by mannequins in suits. <laughs> <laughs> mannequin men oh wait it's it's a sub team of the metal man it's the mannequin, mannequin man. oh heavens okay anything you want to say i thought the army puns were a little much by the army guy oh so okay so this is legitimately one thing i love on page 10 yeah panel two this guy got shot in the shoulder and then the third panel he's just rubbing it yeah. okay oh, i'll get back in the game coach okay just rub, rub some dirt in it <laughs> Go ahead. So I do love that. I legitimately love that. I wasn't sure he was the same guy, but he see right. He's got his blue suit and he's rubbing his shoulder. Hey, hero of the issue, I'd say goes Commissioner Gordon. Picks up a live grenade and throws it out of the train. I thought that was pretty heroic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that that was good. Yes. Then we get to the domestic setting of <laughs> Bab's apartment, I assume it is, because they're in Washington now, right? And Dick and Jim are watching the news and Lori and Babs are setting the table. Very nice domestic setting. And did like the part where Lori's like, aren't you sore from the train crash? And Barb's like, yeah, I'm sore everywhere, but doesn't look it. I thought it was cool that they were hanging out together. So I did like that. I do like that. That's okay, a nice like touch. That. That's a nice like touch. That. They're all hanging yes. out. It's family type related. <laughs> yes. I love how Babs teases Jim about the fact that he's got a cut on his forehead and it didn't come from the derailment. It came because he tripped over her 
purse as he was exiting the train. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was awfully cute. He does call it a family secret. Yep. So yep. Almost, almost yep. we have a title. Yep. And then we get Bat Dash Girl, who doesn't interact with the characters. She's on TV. She's in Hawaii. Yep. In Hawaii at this beauty contest. Here's where your big plot point comes in, where the guy who's dressed in all red has one green boot. Okay. What do you have to say about it? No, go ahead. Because well, you're going to say, say yeah. when I was reading this, when I was preparing, I often read the digital version of JC Universe, and Sean is laughing and sh- nodding. And in the digital version, they colored both his boots green, even though Robin talk, they talk about having one green boot. And it's an important thing because obviously the guy is colorblind. And so I had to, of course, pull out my real issue, which I use when we podcast. But I just think it was funny that they colored it wrong. It reminded me of one of our recent episodes. I think it was one where we had Craig and Jim. I think it was Craig who said, it's tough when you put a major plot point that depends on the art. If it's like a thing that the characters are supposed to notice. So this is a perfect example of that, right? It's supposed to be a green boot and that's what the characters notice and talk about and then drives the plot forward. But it's very easy for it to get messed up or misinterpreted just as what's actually happened. However, at least both were colored green instead of both being red. At least there was that. So <laughs> At that least there was, was that. Fair enough. So that's another thing I love about this story now. <laughs> okay. All right. Yes. I love that there's a mistake. Let's see. The diversity of the contestants. Yeah. Good for Bob. Yes. An African-American, uh, Asian yes. contestant. They're all different diversity of all the contestants, which I thought that actually was is, very nice. Especially touch. for this time. Yeah, that's great. That is very good. Yeah. Very nice yeah. touch. So I noted that. Very good. Yes. So then we get to chapter four, which is the most bizarre chapter i think we've had in oh i was saying i was thinking this was the one that was based on like historical accuracy the most (laughs) i don't know i like that during this huge event where this person has demanded that everybody in the government resigns and the junior congressperson (laughs) from gotham city new jersey that has gotten up to make a statement they say oh well let's recognize her because she's got green hair (laughs) and she says I think we ought to all resign. And the president and all the other Congress people say, sure, we will. And they all walk out of the room. So it's funny because it's just some disembodied voice. Like it's not even someone like appearing on a screen. It's not like there are anything. armed people all around the room and threatening them. It's like, you should all resign. Okay. I can't imagine it will be. But if what I'm about to say is in any way offensive or horrible, you know, please Talk to me and point it out because I do not. And this isn't even a comedy bit. So okay. this you're whole, going funny here. No, 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 no. I'm not going. Fun. This is absolutely true. But if I do say something that's offensive, please correct me gently in the comments. So this whole story point hinges on Babs has this green hair. Is Robin in a TV studio or yeah, does that's the House I'm... of Representatives have its own media center? I don't know what they have. I imagined he was in like the trailer. You know how like at yes. concerts okay. and sports events and stuff, they have people okay. in the tech trailer outside because we okay. see a trailer on the next page and I imagined he was in there. And then here it's, I don't know what's wrong, but your color is way off. Look, nobody else has green hair. Don't argue, just fix it. And then it says everyone's going crazy trying to fix Bab's green hair, except the one on camera four. He doesn't see anything wrong. The cameraman, I guess, does the cameraman have color control on his no, no, no. camera? The, the, the guy watching camera four, he's looking at the back of his head at the bottom of what, page okay. 18. So, so he doesn't now, see it and he's the colorblind villain. So that's what makes me even more wondering because then why wouldn't Robin just like stop him there? What could have been offensive before, like, 
With colorblind people, I'm guessing that he has seen Barbara Gordon before. So however that red looks in his mind, she's wearing green, so it would look different than the color that he normally sees. Or do colorblind people only see like one color? Like, uh, I thought like red and green, a red light you see as green and a green light you see as red. Like Superman's cape. To a colorblind person, does that look green because you have red, green? If I'm being offensive by what I'm asking, I don't mean it to be. I don't think you're being offensive. I think the question is, in real life, what is colorblind really? I think the trope of colorblind is they can't distinguish red and green. So does it look the same? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. she has a green wig on. So like whatever Barbara Gordon looks like to this villain, it would look different because she changed her hair. I understand that it hinges on him wearing the other boot, but man. It's a stretch. I think you're right. I think there are other cues. I'm pretty sure. Again, if there are colorblind listeners, let us know. Or doctors or whoever. But I think it's not like colorblind people see the whole world in black and white, right? Right. I guess. But I think they get confused with red and green. Something in their brain or their eyes or something. And so the trope, I always understood it, is that they would mix up red and green. Or that they would not be able to distinguish them. So having her be green hair, the point was he thinks there's nothing wrong, which I get your confusion, but... Because he would always see Barbara Gordon with a certain color hair. And if that hair color was different, it would be different. So let's cut this short. I think (laughs) if that's the weakest part of this story, (laughs) I think we've... the. Congress resigning to a disembodied voice and we've got all these crazy things happening. <laughs> and then we spend 10 minutes talking about green hair and colorblindness. Let's move on. We get another shot of the Washington Monument and I, I do see Robin's rope still hanging <laughs> yes. there. Yes, I was going to bring that up. Yes. <laughs> well, well, that actually brings up another 20 minutes discussion I'm going to have. So on page 19, panel four, are those men taking their babies out? Is it baby carrot? Are they the cameras? Are they think- like the boxes that government actually I don't understand what they're pushing around. I think are they, they are. There's some sort of audiovisual equipment. And I think, okay. again, I'm not expert on today's audiovisual equipment, let alone the audiovisual equipment from the 70s. But I know that they had a lot of it at football games and stuff. Yeah, watch, yeah. Even if you watch it at Thanksgiving, they always show the crews yeah, at yeah. Thanksgiving and they show them in the trucks. So I just imagined they were packing up. The government's resigned. Let's go home. I guess maybe when you haul them around, they're down low. But I'm used to them being the handles would almost be like a shopping cart, if not even higher. It's too specific a looking thing for it not right. to be based on something, yeah. is my opinion. Okay, so we're gonna flip the page and get to the part of the story that I legitimately yeah. Didn't like. So so why don't you describe <laughs> this part of the story? I don't know who this person is. We'll call him Sean Keen, Paul Myers. <laughs> I, I don't know who this is walking in through the door, but shock of shocks, Robin and Backer are there. He goes for his chest of drawers and his guns. Then Robin jumps out of the trailer. Batgirl gets Zilumbo Jacques chainsaw, fires it up, stops the gun. So I do like that they keep using all of the different devices. Like it's back and forth. Like all three of them are using all of those devices. That I do legitimately like about this story. I do really like that a lot. Yeah, that's kind of fun. Once again, 
They're just messing with them. They're just showing yeah. off. They're just messing with the guy just to mess with them, to have fun. And I also do kind of think, and I'm being legitimately here. I know a lot of times I can not be serious, but this actually kind of would be like a super cool action sequence in a movie or TV show in a trailer because a trailer is so confined yeah. where like they're going over each other and under each other and to the side. Just because it's so enclosed, it would be cool. It could be. You don't get that sense at all from this part. I mean, in my mind, <laughs> the yeah. weakest art panel at the bottom of 22, Batgirl and Robin are both diving towards the bad guy. Talk about looking like cardboard they literally look like they're cardboard cutouts of Batgirl and robin floating towards the guy i mean i i really think that's a very weak panel well and also again not to be insensitive i think i may be colorblind because robin's sleeves look different in the printed issue oh you're right they are <laughs> they're miscolored the yeah they, instead of being the bright green they don't even match his glove the instead of the bright green they're sort of like an olive dark green how about that i didn't notice that but yet that's a miscoloring in the original I wonder if it's miscolored in the digital and if they fixed it. I don't know. <laughs> Good catch. So then finally, that gives us the Rosakis recap. Once again, they're in the diner in their costumes. I love that. I was in plays and musicals in school. And man, when that was done, you would go to Denny's in your costume <laughs> and you would eat. This is the most historically accurate part of the story. That is absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that. Yeah, I do like that. We get a little bit of banter, Robin trying to be macho, but it, it doesn't seem like his heart's in it. He's got Lori, he's got Bat Dash Girl, he's got Harlequin. He's like, hey, I took my swing, I missed, and we'll move on. So it doesn't seem like his heart was quite in it. Phew, is all I have to say. Phew. <laughs> Listeners, we'd love to know what you thought about this story. We've talked a lot about a lot of these stories haven't made a lot of sense, but we've enjoyed them so much because of the personal interaction. The characters spent a lot of time apart in this issue. And the parts we pointed out were the like, we liked the scene where they were hanging out together. Yes, we liked the yes. scene in the diner. Yeah. So I think there maybe just wasn't enough, like the balance was a little off. Too much craziness, not quite enough personal interaction, maybe. You know, here we are dissecting the story 45 years later. And honestly, if my personal low point is kind of almost in the middle, I would not say I hate this story. It doesn't offend me. I don't despise right. it or anything like that no. like if this is the worst one of the entire series right. it's still fun yeah it's still fun no matter what you love if you love alfred hitchcock or let's say Kylie minogue or whatever a Just football team or whatever, somebody like no matter what you love we'll take something i don't know anything about and don't have a personal football games so if you follow a team and I'm not talking about like the team loses a game. You're looking back at your favorite team. I can't believe I'm talking about sports on Oscars night. Anyway, the certain games that you love that your sports team won. There have to be a better game that you love, even if it, maybe you hate that other team that they went. So like anytime like someone says, oh, I love all of these songs equally. I love all of these movies equally. I love all of this sports teams games equally. They can't be. Like, I don't care what you love. There have to be like rankings. You know, I can talk, I could do a 12 episode podcast just about issue 13. Manhattan is melting. I could yeah. talk about that all the time. It's okay. It's okay that I don't like a story. Batman Family can be your favorite series, but you could have favorite issues within the series. Exactly. So, yes. So. Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. So don't come at me, cousins. <laughs> <laughs> We talk about that again because I've changed my mind about that. Why don't we it. just re-record? <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, we won't. Again, our... because the, the, see, we should let them in. This is our second re-recording of this because I used to love this story and Paul completely changed my mind about it. 
Now we have to go back because I love it again. No, that's that <laughs> is me not being serious. Why don't you have a fruit pie, Sean? <laughs> what I am serious about are the ads and the letters pages. <laughs> a fruit pie ad? Oh, don't even get me started. This is supposed to be Twinkies, not fruit pies. But it does have. Well, wait, it doesn't really have Aquaman. That's the best part. No offense, Rob. We're talking about the hostess ad on the inside cover. We've moved on to another segment. I don't know. <laughs> you probably got that. But anyway. hey, without a guest, we're all over the place today. We're like, <laughs> first episode without a guest in a long time. Sorry, listeners. We're all over the place. We don't have someone to act right in front of. So now we're just, ooh. and I don't even drink. Anyway, the inside front cover is a hostess ad. And normally I love that. And I do love it. But it's Hostess Fruit Pies and they're roasts. The cool thing is, so the logo says Aquaman, but Aquaman's not in it. It's Mira and Aqualad. And that actually is super, super cool. I love that. Yes. And I am absolutely serious. These villains are like Manta Men. That outfit looks fantastic. And I'm not saying this funny. I want that to be like a SeaWorld Broadway show. They sing and dance and like the. It's better than, was it Left Shark for Katy Perry? No, this, I love these outfits. So I'm going to start a 12-episode podcast about this hostess ad. Mara's making a giant hand out of her water powers to give them all hostess fruit pies, which is the crux of the plot. I want to talk about, on the opposite side of page 12 of the story, you've got a terrific ad for Showcase 97, which we talked about with Power Girl. It's basically replicating the cover. Yeah, and I need to get that issue. I don't think I've ever read that story. No, they're great. I think they're on DC Universe. I'm not positive. Is it like a three-issue arc? Three issues. Okay, yeah, good. Okay, now we are going to go on to Batmail Family. So, of course, once again, I'm asking Mike Younger, Greg Showmaker, David DeWitt, Todd Strending, Beth Montalone, Robert Salian. I'm asking you to come onto the onto the show and make us do a really good show instead of the one we're doing now. <laughs> so we're going to talk about Mike Younger has a comment. All of these letters are about Batman Family number 13, which is my absolute favorite issue, which is the man who melted Manhattan, which is the outsider. It's the super mega team up between Batgirl, Robin and Man Bat. It's the one where we had both Dan Greenfield and Tim Price on. Yes. And they did a much better job than we are doing today. Anyway, so Mike Younger writes in and he says a bunch of great things. But um, the one part I wanted to say is, the art by Don Newton, Marshall Rogers, and Bob Wycheck was out of this world. Mm -hmm. Batgirl, Robin, and Mambat never looked better. Mm -hmm. Most of all, I'd like to personally thank Bob Rizakis for bringing back so many long-forgotten members of the Batman family, villains included. In the past six months, we've seen the returns of Batwoman, Vicky Vale, The Outsiders, Catman in Freedom Fighters, and the original Bat-Girl in Teen Titans. What more could a fan ask for? I agree, Mike. Yep, absolutely loved it. One guy, this David DeWitt, did not mm -hmm. like the story, which I found hard to believe because he's accusing Bob Rosakis of picking the letters only the ones that he wants to print, which I'm yeah. sure he did because <laughs> he was in charge of it. But Bob does say, hey, you're in the minority with your opinion about this, David. And two things about that. So he says, as far as picking, this is Bob Rosakis writing, as far as picking the letters, all the mail is read by editor Julie Schwartz first, who grades the letters A, B, C, etc. They are then read by yours truly, who selects the best of the Schwartz picks for publication. Yeah, I thought that was neat. That's a neat little inside tip there. But the thing that David DeWitt says, he says, also, I wish you would separate Backer and Robin. In solo stories, I love them. Together, they make me sick. <laughs> now, for me, for me, Sean, now I'm talking. Generally, I think in Batman Family, the team-ups 
are better than the solo stories. But I do agree with David. Batgirl should be treated as a bit older, more professional, and with a supporting cast of her own. Mm, I do, and that's that. really true because at the very least. Dick had Laurie and oh, I can't her uncle. Uh, yeah, the police commissioner. Yeah, so he did have someone, and I know at times they've tried to like bring people into the mm-hmm. Batgirl, so but they never really stick around or last. So even though I disagree about the solo stories being better, I do agree that they should have worked the supporting cast mm-hmm. better. Beth Monteleone said Bob Rosakis will be forgiven for all of the nonsense regarding like the melting of Manhattan. <laughs> However. Because he didn't even try to explain the maniac motorcycles, the moonbeam, the unarukukukutu, or the melting of Manhattan. Such audacity deserves credit. (laughs) Snaps up, Beth. I agree. I agree. (laughs) And then my last pick is Robert Salian said, Mm -hmm. finally, maybe I should classify my next subject as part of the family, but he is still in a class by himself. The he being Batmite. (laughs) <laughs> the day of the pest seems to be over. And though Mr. McSpitalik may hang on because he was the first, I don't expect to see another army of them throughout the superhero books, but I would like to see Batmite again. Maybe it's because he tried to help Batman instead of harm him, or because he looks so lovable in the new cartoon show. Whatever the reason, I would really like to see him again. <laughs> so I'm sure fans of DC Comics know about that horrible, horrible person who wrote a letter, I think, to Green Lantern which I kicked off the whole crisis on Infinite Earth. And if I had a time machine, I would go back and break his pencil. But I can't help but think that maybe Robert Salian put the idea of that mic <laughs> in, and then he does show up later. So mm-hmm. Robert Salian, you are my favorite Batmail family letter writer ever. <laughs> I was going to just note that I'm not going to read them all, but the bottom text box of the letter page, they had the contest about the comedy cover caper participants and people wrote in their suggestions to make comedy covers. So I thought that was kind of neat that you could, that you you can read, you go back and look at the covers and put those readers comments in. I thought that was cute. And then they do acknowledge at the end of the text part, that next issue is kicking off our new dollar comics format which I think is very cool. Yeah, I I was like over the moon, super thrilled, excited when I learned about that. Because even back then, like I loved dollar comics. Absolutely. Okay, now the next thing we're going to talk about is the most spectacular superhero battle of them all. Superman versus Muhammad Ali. Coming this winter, a 72-page all-new supersized knockout by Neil Adams and Dick Giordano. Yeah, I mean, what else is there really to say about Superman versus Muhammad Ali? What's interesting here, you've got the main figures. You don't have all the background people. Like, you don't have Batman's head. Yeah, yeah, the spectators like they have on the cover. So I thought that was kind of a neat thing. Yeah, that book is fantastic. I'm sure everyone here has read it. I was very lucky, probably 15 years ago, before he started charging exorbitant fees to sign things, I got Neil Adams to sign my copy of that. I remember back in the 90s, I dated this like super, super really nice guy and he knew I was into comics. He said, I have a Superman comic and it's like, like a really really big one i'm like oh i think that's a treasury so i don't know like two or three dates in like i went over to his house he said do you want to see it i'm like yeah and he pulled this out like oh my god this is fantastic and i thought for sure he was gonna give it to me he never did (laughs) (laughs) no 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 no, no. i liked him a lot he he was super intelligent like i really like talking but i thought for sure he was good and he didn't but no but that that's not what broke us up but ted from harrisburg I can't believe that you didn't give me that Superman versus Muhammad Ali. (laughs) We'll see if he's listening. But one book I did have, a lot of times I can remember nearly like every comic I got, where I got it, how I got that kind of thing. But I know I had 
Amazing World of DC Comics. And I don't know that I got it this month that it came out. So it's the Amazing World of DC Comics number 16, The Golden Age, which, man, that has a beautiful cover. Yeah, that's a cool cover. Somehow I got it. And again, I don't think it was that month, but I don't know how I got it because at this point, I didn't know about comic book shops, that there were none near me. So I don't know how I got it somehow. I don't know if I got it from a friend in a trade or something like that. I loved that issue. That maybe was one of the things that really sparked my love of Earth 2. Yeah. It was like reading all about it in the past and everything. I'll make sure to include that ad because that's a good one. Oh, we do have a Bureau of Missing Villains this time. And it's the Calendar Man. Okay. We've moved up from D minus villains to <laughs> C plus, maybe B minus villain, the Calendar Man. What's funny is it says his only appearance was in Detective Comics 259 from 1958. He does appear next in Batman number 312 from March 1979. And the reason I remember that is I remember that cover vividly in my head. It's by Walt Simonson. That's about a year and a half from now. It's a little too close to this. The spark. The spark for it. Or a little too far away for it to be the spark of it. But in my head, anyway, I'm going to say they said, oh, let's bring that guy back. Yeah, they just show Calendar Man. And we'll include this when we like including these missing villain ones so people can check them out. Shows him in his different outfit for the different seasons long before he had the months tattooed on his head like in the yeah. long Halloween. <laughs> He's creepy now. He was funny then. The cover you're talking about with Simonson, is that where his costume has the shoulder things? Yes, big shoulder pads. Things? Yes. And so it's very impractical, but I do like that oh, it's, costume yeah. a lot. The tattoos, I'm kind of, yeah, I'm kind of either way. I think there would be a cool way to do it, but face tattoos are always gonna, you know. They're creepy, yeah. However, I will say, this is a villain with a clear theme, yes. and he sticks to it, <laughs> which, as <laughs> listeners know, my cousins know, I wholeheartedly applaud. <laughs> well, I think they transformed him, and I, I could be wrong, but I assumed it happened in the long Halloween, but it could happen before that. But they transformed him from a goofy villain to yeah. a creepy villain. Yeah. At this point, he's still a goofy villain. In terms of Batman themed villains, Clock King and Calendar Man, I think they do make sense because you could get material sure. out of both of those. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So the last ad we're going to talk about is the last ad of the book, and that is the Superhero Time Machine. Be the first to have your favorite superhero on your own watch. Here's how. And then there's 12,000 words of text, but they are watches that have Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, Spider-Man, and Joker. Now, the only thing... First of all, I think these look neat. If I saw it today for, I don't know, like maybe even 50 bucks. Maybe, it's maybe. pretty cool. It's a pretty cool thing, yeah. The only thing is, especially for like this time period, for watches, I wanted them to have literally the hands that move. They, <laughs> like a Mickey Mouse they, watch. <laughs> yes, they should have had... Superman and what with their hands yeah, moving. That I cool. love that. And I have a ton of Disney watches that have the hands moving. Now I've since moved on. And actually now I don't wear a watch. I wear my Apple watch, but not like a watch watch. But yeah, at the time I didn't have any of these, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, I probably would have. Do you use the Mickey Mouse face on your Apple watch? I do not. I use just regular like photos. Uh, I have an alternate face that when I was in Disney, I switch it to the Mickey Mouse and switch it back to the regular face when I'm home. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> just a little going, under, going undercover. <laughs> some of my, I think there are 20 pictures that you can have for your thing. So some of them are family members. Some of them are dogs. I do have a few comic ones. I know I have a Captain America shield. I have the spider signal. Oh, that's I'm, cool. I'm a huge fan of the spider signal. All right. Let's move on to our second story. This one is starring Man Bat called Bullseye for Murder. 
It's a nine-page gem written by Bob Rosakis, of course, with art, beautiful art by Michael Goldman with Inker Clem Robbins. And the only place it's been reprinted is in that same book, The Legends of the Dark Knight by Michael Golden. So we open with the same scene from last issue's cliffhanger. The shotgun sniper is taking aim at one of the three protagonists of the story. But which one? In the words of our bat cousin, Bob Rosakis, is it the flying bat dash man with giant wings, fantastic strength, and animal instinct, the eerie man bat? Or is it the battle-scarred Vietnam veteran whose only weapons in the war on crime are a cane and his razor-sharp intelligence, Jason Bard? Or is it the only connection between the shotgun sniper's previous victims, Mrs. Manbat herself, the very pregnant Francine Langstrom? Let's find out who in Bullseye for Murder. We open with Manbat and Jason exhibiting their testosterone as they battle Marvel style <laughs> on the roof up for two and a half pages. Fortunately, Manbat falls off the roof. Why fortunately? Because he falls right in front of the window Francine is leaning out of as the shotgun sniper fires at her. Manbat takes the bullet in the wing for his wife as he crashes through the window and gets Francine to stay down. She clues him in on who Jason is and why he suspects Kirk. Manbat takes off again and sees the sniper as he enters Max Diner through the back door. Tired from his fight with Manbat, Bart enters the same diner, but through the front door, for a hamburger. He's hanging out in the neighborhood since he still suspects Kirk is the sniper. Kirk is worried about how he can take down the sniper without endangering the people in the diner, so he tries to sneak in because he is so inconspicuous <laughs> the sniper panics and starts shooting around but kirk and bard decide to finally team up to take him out turns out the sniper was a dude from francine's summer camp who became a sharpshooter in the army and wanted to take out all the people that he felt treated him poorly when he was a kid in the rosakas roundup jason makes sure to point out that man bat earned half the reward much to captain daniel's chagrin kirk and francine can really use that money you know why, Sean? Because it's time to go to the hospital. Francine informs Kirk that he is about to become a daddy, just like Two-Face. The end. <laughs> so, Sean, what did you think of Bullseye for Murder? Bat family cousins, I'm going to need you to step away from the table with the alcohol. Because if you are playing the man-bat drinking game where you drink every time Sean says the word beautiful, you <laughs> are going to die tonight. And I don't want you to die. Oh, my God. The previous story, I said, quote, unquote, nothing happens other than his tussle with the man with the pigeons. Well, it's the payoff here because like every single page in the story, if it doesn't have action... It has mounting tension and build up. Oh my God, I love this story. Yeah, this is awesome. Yeah, I'm trying to remember every Man Bat solo story. And I think this probably is my favorite one. It's just action from beginning to end. And I understand this is a comic book. I understand it's a printed medium. It's so cinematic. This Michael Golden, I think he might be an okay artist. <laughs> his layouts, his faces, every panel of this story i could have a 12 episode miniseries about. Well, let's walk through it page by page yeah so page one my only comment beautiful art there's a lot of words on page one we like words we know how to read jason bard is getting co-billing with man bat in this story could have used a logo <laughs> could have used a logo martin i agree martin. i know martin uh, yeah, logo. <laughs> yeah before he says it you're right martin Neither one of them had much of a logo there i thought your complaint about this issue was it's almost a repeat of the last page of the pre i thought that i wasn't going to complain about complaint. it i was going to point that out because you do have the three panels down the side that's very yeah, reminiscent yeah. of the last page of the last issue i was going to complain about it because it's still really effective to get the yeah. point across and i do like the panel on the left where 
You've got Jason swinging his cane as Man Bat's approaching him with the moon in the background. Mm -hmm. Francine leaning out the window and there's the guy with the gun, right? I mean, that is really a dramatic image. Absolutely, yeah. You could almost say it's beautiful. (laughs) I do really like it. If you go to page two, from an art perspective, Jason takes a swing at Man Bat Mm -hmm. and he flies up and back around and he does it again where the scree is part of the motion. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. The motion is carried by this triangular panel layout where it goes the points of it. Yep. Points of it. It goes from six o'clock all the way back around the six o'clock. So that's pretty, pretty cool. And then the very next panel where Jason actually is able to swack Manbat in the face with a cane. Wow, what a great image of Manbat getting whacked in the face. I don't want to say I like it. But it looks like it hurts. It looks like it hurts. Artistically, that's what you're supposed to do. I mean, I feel bad for man back that he's getting yeah. smacked in the face. But yeah, it it looks like it hurts. And the bottom of the page where we kind of see what Kirk is seeing, three dizzying image. You can almost see this on a 70s TV show where they're going around. Yeah. I mean, fantastic. Yeah, beautiful. On the next page, three, man, that's grabbing Jason's hand. We have to talk about this. I don't care who you are. You know, you're the shotgun sniper. Doesn't have any clue who Jason is at this point. And Jason holds his own. Pretty impressive, I thought. I love Jason with his cane because it reminds me of Steed from the Avengers with his umbrella. I may have said that last episode. I thought page four is an effective sequence. I guess he doesn't really fall off. He sort of dives off to avoid his cane again. And he Mm -hmm. falls right in front of where Francine is. That's really scary, right? Here's the guy's taking a shot at Francine and Kirk basically gets shot right in the wing. It's like almost a hole taken out of his wing or something. Right. But all he has to do is just rub it a little bit. <laughs> I guess I was going to say like, like that. He'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bullets don't hurt in this issue. So when Kirk flies through the window, this is the closest thing I have to a complaint. His wife is pregnant and it's not really clear that he's cradling Francine because it kind of looks like he's more like pushing her down well i mean he's worried about her getting shot yes but then he doesn't say like are you okay is the baby okay do you feel it that's a super minor Mm -hmm. complaint and that's the closest thing i have to a complaint to the story i mean i thought it was effective she's like he thinks you're the sniper she's telling him all about it and then at the bottom of the page she's like hang on there little kirk jr don't come yet yeah (laughs) i love that that was a nice touch he gets right back out in the thick of things he flies out the window he's he hears like the the running of the footsteps down the the fire escape i mean i made fun of it in the recap but what is he thinking i don't get that he just tries to sneak into the diner i I don't really understand the not logistics but the layout you've got jason bard who's gotten a burger very quickly (laughs) and then he gets up to use the theme of the issue theme of the issue is lots of burgers he still thinks kirk is the shot gun sniper and he thought that francine tipped him off and that that's why he was there that whole plot thing about who is the son very clever right kirk thinks it's bard bard thinks it's kirk francine at this point has figured it out it's all very clever i think i guess they don't technically show it but i think Manbat is coming through the back entrance because you said about him sneaking in he's looking in the alley and he sees the bad guy go in through the back entrance uh maybe that's it maybe and that's i think man bat follows him in there so i think man bat is he could have turned back into kirk yeah yeah i mean yeah he would have been less conspicuous going in with no shirt uh, than going in as man bat yeah so then they finally figure out that they're on the same side and they team up i tell you oh jason bard's a pretty good fighter i do like that kirk comes up with the idea kirk says you know i'll act as a decoy right you take him down 
that's pretty cool. And then Jason does Man Bad a solid by making sure he gets half the reward. I think that's yeah. awesome. And then once again, Kirk just likes to walk around with no shirt. He comes back to the apartment. I'm back. Figured it out. It's this guy that used to, and she's like, Yeah, yeah, I know. He says, Why are you uh why do you have your coat on? You gone somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> She's going out to get a burger. <laughs> yeah, that must be it. <laughs> he didn't bring one home in a doggy bag. But talk about the art. The last two panels, the expression on both Kirk's and Francine's faces are exquisite. I mean, they're really good. He's, what, what, you mean it's time? And she's got this sort of wry and smile. Let's go, daddy. And he's giving her a kiss on the forehead. I mean, just tremendous, I think. I'm very, very impressed by it. Yeah, I audio cut and paste. Like, I love Michael Golden. His artwork yeah. is fantastic. However, you did not talk about the best thing about this entire story. Whoa, lay it on me. Earlier in the first story of the issue, which is far better than this one, you said one of the best things was all of the guest stars. We didn't talk about the guest star that's in this issue. Okay, you got me. You will want to go to page six. And you will want to see the gentleman in the lower left corner of the diner. With the um, glasses and the blonde hair, yeah. The white shirt with the glasses. Yeah. And the woman says, okay, Mike, have it your way. But I still say I heard glass breaking too. That is Michael Golden. Oh, you're right. And the reason why I think that is in a couple issues in Detective Comics, there's the Batmite story. And readers, if you will look at the text that I just magically sent you, if you look at the panels from, uh, we're skipping ahead, Detective Comics 482 in the Batmite story, it's Batmite magically is, you know, sending a typewriter, says, here's a typewriter, you just type what I tell you. And yeah. he says, listen, Batmite, we're going to need an artist. <laughs> and there he is. this artist appears, he has glasses, blonde hair, a white t-shirt. It's Michael Golden. That's so cool. It has to be like it's. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess it's, it's, it's definitely it's definitely him. He put himself in the story. That yeah. is a great catch. I am yeah. very impressed. Well done. <laughs> well, speaking of Michael Golden, quite the segue. I do want to take a couple minutes and do Bat Family history on one of Sean's favorite artists, Michael Golden. So we talked about him quite a bit last month. So I'll, I'll keep it relatively short, although. As I look at what I've written, it's not that short. Can you turn it into a 12-episode podcast miniseries? <laughs> Golden was born in October of 1955 and started his illustration career in commercial art. I didn't find a whole lot about his early life. There is a Tomorrow's book, a Modern Masters, about Michael Golden. I have four or five of them, but I don't have that particular book. You can't get it from Tomorrow's in paperback, but you can buy the digital version Tomorrow's website, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Anyway, my guess is his early life is covered in that book, but I, I haven't read it. Anyway, he entered the comics industry in 1977. Three stories at Marvel, two for the Defenders, and one in Marvel Classics Comics, The Cask of Amontadillo, a backup story story adapting Edgar Allan Poe's short story. His fourth published work was the Man Bat story from last issue that we raved about. I mean, think about that for a second. We talked about how different it looked. That was his fourth published story. Most of his work at DC was on Batman Family, Mr. Miracle, and a little bit of House of Mystery thrown in. We will see his work over the next several issues for sure, including the story Sean just mentioned, The Batmite's New York Adventure in 482. He got his big break as the regular artist on The Micronauts in 1979, written by Marvel's Bob Haney, Bill Manlo, a great series and a collaboration between them. They created the look as well as the personalities of what were just toys when they got a hold of them. Golden illustrated the first 12 issues, and in order to replace him, they got some pretty good talent after that. Howard Chaikin, Steve Ditko, Pat Broderick, Butch Gweiss, they were the ones who replaced him after that. 
He continued doing a lot of work for Marvel, a lot of covers, some Doctor Strange, Howard the Duck in the Black and White magazine, which I did not know. Mm. I think I had those Doctor Stranges at the time, but I'd never read Howard the Duck. It was at this time he was a co-creator of Rogue in Avengers Annual number 10 from 1981. Right after that, one of Sean's favorite series, Marvel Fanfare, was launched. This mm-hmm. anthology series was edited by Al Milgram. It was pretty popular for a while. I know I read them all. They kicked off with a classic four-part Spider-Man, X-Men, and Kazar stories set in the Savage Land. You'll remember, if you're our age, you'll remember that's the one where Spidey is transformed into a giant spider. And Golden did the art in the first two issues of that story, and he was at his peak. And it says something that he was picked to help kick off that series. Marvel fanfare was envisioned as sort of a showcase of the comic industry's best talent. Each issue was 36 pages of material with no ads, which was different for the time, and it was twice as expensive as a regular Marvel comic. Al Milgram quote says, it was intended that Marvel fanfare would appeal especially to the fans. I tried to get the best possible stuff by either established pros or talented newcomers. At least part of the purpose was to use better paper, more elaborate detailed coloring, and by charging a higher cover price to eliminate all those insightly ads, although we love the ads. (laughs) The creators were paid a bonus 50% rate too. I was sometimes accused of using up inventory material as if that was necessarily a bad thing. I used a little bit, but was only of high enough quality. You know, he goes on and talks, what killed it was really the advent of incentive payments to freelancers. So the top creators would make more for more than just the rate and a half fanfare paid if they worked on the better selling regular titles. I thought that was interesting because we know early to mid 80s, you know, DC was the first with Paul Levis to put in some of these royalties and incentive payments and Marvel followed shortly after. And that's what killed a book like Marvel Fanfare where they paid extra to give them their best stuff. Anyway, back to Golden. His next big project was the independently published work he co-created with Larry Hama called Bucky O'Hare. Back at Marvel, probably what he's best known for is The Nom, and that was launched in 1986 by Doug Murray and Michael Golden. He did about the first 13 issues of that as well. And, you know, it's funny, I thought it was a lot more than that. I wasn't a regular buyer of that, but I thought he did a lot of issues of that. But I think the reason is he did a lot of the covers, even when he was no longer doing the interiors. Mm -hmm. Because by the 90s, his interiors were pretty sparse, mainly Marvel, occasional DC, but he did a lot of covers. But here's something neat for you, Sean, for you to look for next time we go to a show. He also penciled part of the Marvel No Prize book. And I also think he was doing a lot of commercial work, which also probably paid better. In the early 90s, he was briefly an editor for DC Comics and later in the decade served as senior art director for Marvel. But despite his considerable amount of work in comics, Golden has stated that he still found advertising and commercial design work to be more fulfilling than comics because, quote, it was something different each time. In a 97 interview with Wizard Magazine, Golden explained that he had not attended a comics convention since 1979 because he was uncomfortable with the cult of personality treatment of comics creators. I thought it was interesting. But by the 2000s, he has been known to make appearances at conventions. I know so because I saw him either at Baltimore or Philadelphia. I can't remember which. And that's where I got him to sign my copy of Micronauts number one. Eskart.com describes his style. Quote, comics creator Michael Golden is known for his unique art style that at various times seems detailed and other times seems to be amazingly streamlined cutting away the excess and maintaining the true essentials. These techniques, coupled with his signature storytelling construction, and we talked about one of those with that panel with the fan, garner him a legion of devotees that number not only comics readers, but other artists as well. He has only 91 story credits on Mike's Amazing World, which is maybe a little shy because it doesn't seem to have his independent work, but where he has a lot is cover, he has 
344 covers listed on Mike's Amazing World, only 79 for DC, but 252 covers for Marvel. That's pretty impressive. Some of the sites I visited talk about his influences on other artists, specifically the Art Adams. You can see a lot of Michael Golden and Art Adams, for example, but terrific artist, not as much available that I was able to find easily on his personal life. But maybe some of our listeners have that Modern Masters book. At some point, I'll probably look for it at a show and pick it up. Thought it was fun to research him a little bit. So I hope you enjoyed it, Sean. That was for you. I was going to say, Bat Cousins, unless you're jogging or driving when you listen to this, it's funny because we Zoom these meetings. And I'm sure when Paul's doing that, he sees the top of my head because I'm on my iPad looking up. So I looked up Michael Golden, Bucky O'Hare, Michael Golden, Nam. So I encourage you, if you're if you're listening to this, Definitely like Google images of the artists he's talk he talks about because I had no idea he did the nom. Like that's a book that I probably would not have read before. Yeah, the two things I have in my head, not besides Batman Family, was the Micronauts and then the nom. Like I said, I, I was not a regular reader and war comics. I had a, maybe a couple issues of it, but it was very popular. It was like the mash of, of comics. Yeah. My reluctance to the Micronauts, I think, especially like these man bat stories. We always talk about like him being like very grounded in yeah. reality. And I guess Micronauts isn't. It takes place in the microverse, the same yeah, the so. same place where Ant-Man just was. <laughs> well, listen, next time I see you, I'm bringing the first 12 issues of Micronauts for you to read. Okay. And all okay. Michael Golden. Okay. So okay. just hold on to your hats for that. Then you'll tell me if you still don't like it. Okay. So let's move on to our last segment, Trip to Gabriel's Horn. We're going to go to the hip hop and tang out for the Teen Titans, who have now disbanded and they're just with Mal there now. But we do talk <laughs> about the most 1970s moment in the issue. Sean, what do you got? The first story I have a couple commissioner gordon talks about red grange which i probably was like a famous football <laughs> he was player. like from the 30s or the 40s <laughs> yeah well but that it's nostalgia for 20 for years him, ago. he would have remembered him yeah that's yeah. a good one babs talks about her electric knife uh, i had that one too yes yeah <laughs> i'm like was that a thing <laughs> That's a good one. Do you have anything else from the first story? They're pretty weak. On page four, in the place he saws into, he sees horse saddles, and that's what he steals. Presumably, is that a bar or a horse saddle store? They talk about how he stole a saddle that was used for the next mm -hmm. villain. So I live outside of Philadelphia, and I Googled yesterday where to buy a horse saddle in Philadelphia. <laughs> There are no stores in the city of Philadelphia. There are some in the 20 miles outside suburbs. I guess New Carthage has a big riding population. In the 70s, my mom, well, my mom and my sister were super into horses. And my mom worked at a tack shop. So a tack, tack is like yeah. what, what a horse, the reins and the saddle, all of that. And she worked at the stone mill tack shop. Oh, cool. Yeah, so they did sell saddles and all those horse accoutrements and especially like in the 70s probably like with every kind of retail store you know it's probably perfect but i would still think that there probably are places that you can go to still buy horse tack I mean, yeah. Sure. oh yeah no there's definitely places you can buy it another stretch originally i thought commissioner gordon saying the war is over to the guy was a kind mm. of a vietnam reference but he says yeah, your, yeah. your war is over so that's not really one mm. Then I was like, they still have the swimsuits and the beauty contest. But I looked that up. They eliminated swimsuits and the beauty contest in 2018. So that's yeah. the 70s. I was debating because there are still Miss Universe is still yeah, around. No, they, I don't, still I don't know that it's on network TV. I think it's on cable, if that. Yeah. But they were yeah, a bigger thing. Still, and, yeah, you know, they yeah. were all four of them gathered around to watch it. So that, you know, right, yeah. Babs uses the phrase doped out. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. 
But the best one I had, other than the electric knife, was the fact that on page 17 in a text box, the president is about to address a joint session of Congress on a new energy policy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. So that was topical for the 70s. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I have one good one in the Man Bat story. I mean, there's the beeper and the payphone, right? Yeah, yeah. And did you notice that Francine is wearing the same hair barrette that you saw a few issues ago that Marshall Rogers drew? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, you noticed that? Was that one of yours? Yeah. I, I didn't write it down, but that's because I brought it up before. Yeah. I noticed it was the same one. I thought that was a really nice touch. So the two things, one of which you actually talked about in your discussion oh. of it, Kirk walking around without a shirt. Like in the <laughs> 70s, men could just walk around without a shirt and you wouldn't even think twice about it. <laughs> just anywhere, anywhere you could be, a man could be shirtless and you wouldn't even think twice about it. Like that's just how it was. And like now, it'd be like, depending on where you are, I guess. But yeah, like you could be anywhere and just see some guy without a shirt. You wouldn't think anything. The other thing, and these are phenomenal. And when I point it out, you will be amazed. So technically, the first instance is page two of the story. Kirk's flares. Holy moly. The flares on those pants. And Jason Bard. Look uh-huh. at every kind of pant that those men are wearing. They extend past that shoe by a good 36 inches. Wow, that's a good... And you're right, he is definitely drawing. Even on man bats as he's flying, he's using the flares on man bats' pants as a a device to show motion. Sean, that is a great one. That beats mine. I was going to talk about in our favorite panel back on page two, and I thought that's where you were going, the one with the fan and the Mm -hmm. scree. You see lots of antennas on the roof. The one I wasn't sure about, maybe Captain Entropy or somebody knows about guns. I don't know anything about guns, but the sites that we see on page one where we see Mm. the three figures, they're physical like pieces of metal on the top of the gun. Are those things all like digital now and computerized or is there still like an old? I don't know if that's one. But that was, you know, I mean, here I am scouring this book. You know, I, I say that to the end after I've done all my other work. I'm like scouring every page of <laughs> these stuff. So I don't know if that's really one or not. To flip back and to drive the point um, on page eight, the last panel, Jason is kicking the shotgun sniper, but his flare landed there 30 seconds earlier. <laughs> oh, yeah, look at that. Wow. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. At the top of that page, you see a good one of Man Bat's flare on his too, as he's diving yeah. out of the way. Yeah. Wow. That's really, that's a great catch, man. That's, that's the winner. And on the, when Man Bat leaves after saying he wants his reward, his pants flare out there. Yeah. Good call. Cool. Are we done? We are done. That's it for this issue. Now we're going to play a podcast promo. And when we return, we will read and respond to your listener feedback. Just when you thought it was safe to hear a podcast promo. Brave and bold. Comic books. JLMA. JL May do 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 brave and the bold do 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 comic books do 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 JL May JL May do 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 brave and the bold do 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 comic books do 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 JL May JL May do 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 the annual podcast crossover event celebrating the Justice League is back. And we're covering the 2007 Brave and the Bold series that started with Mark Wade and George freaking Perez and ended with J. Michael Straczynski. 
throughout the month of May, participating podcasts will release special episodes on issues in the run. It all kicks off in the Overlook Dark Knight podcast. Follow the event on social media using the hashtag JLMay2023. Coming this May. JL May do 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 Brave and the Bold do 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 Comic Book do 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 Mephisto Hey! That it? Is that what you want? Things I do for this show. <laughs> Welcome back. Now we will read and respond to your listener feedback for episode 15, Finding the Batcave and a Shotgun Sniper, with our special guests, Craig Boldman and Jim Beard. Man, we had a ton of comments this month on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Our most ever, so let's dive in. First up, we have Bad Uncle Bob Zupanchik. Hey, Bat Cousins, Uncle Travis here with a few more 1970s moments. Page one, Jason Bard is sporting longer hair and sideburns that were popular in the 70s. Absolutely. Yeah. Pages one, four, five, and six, Jason's wardrobe is pure 70s. Check out the wide lapels on his suit. The matching vest and that wide tie. Yeah. And pages seven and eight, there are multiple old-fashioned TV antennas on the roof of Gotham. Yep. I bought this issue off the spinner rack all those years ago. Saved me a couple of hot dogs. Excellent. <laughs> I love to hear that people bought it off the spinner rack. Back cousin Brian Shufo says, The Killer Moth story was much more enjoyable when I was seven years old <laughs> and just looking at the pictures. Visually, there is a lot of fun stuff to look at. The detail of the seams and the image of Robin's gloves with the bugging device impressed younger me. And I found that nest hilarious. At that age, I wasn't really sure that Robin wasn't an alien. <laughs> the story probably didn't need the deception of Killer Moth in two places, since the dialogue makes it clear this was happening on two different days. <laughs> I like the idea of two villains disagreeing about the best way to do something, separating to try it on their own, failing, and then meeting up in jail with two crazy <laughs> stories. <laughs> I agree. Next up, Bat celebrity interviewer Rob Kelly was very curt with us. I turned this show off after I heard Jim say, I don't like this Jim Aparo cover, so I don't have much to say. See you next month. <laughs> and then I, Sean, said, Rob, I hope you didn't miss the part where we talked about Ultra the Multi-Alien. We'll just have to see if Rob made it back to the reunion. Next up, Isamu Hideke Yukinori comes by the reunion and provided some fantastic info. Mm -hmm. Here's what he says. Just to clarify a few things. Dad, not me, recreated the DC Superstar Society applications for the non-existent Aquaman and Firestorm chapters as a gift to Rob and Shag in celebration of the 200th episode for the Fire and Water podcast. He also designed the actual club membership kit materials, which are what are featured in Rob Kelly's Twitter photo, back in 2018, planning to give them to Rob and Shag at the next milestone, episode 300, which hasn't happened yet. But Adrian Zett and I decided to give them out to celebrate the podcast's 10-year anniversary in 2021. I don't think the actual Firestorm and Aquaman chapter applications were ever posted online. They were being included in Dad's plan to be published art book. So then Isamu provided some fantastic artwork of the DC superstars. Everybody should go onto the website and check it out. There's Firestorm and Aquaman. So it's like apparently the first place it's been published, Dead Man, Man Bat even mm -hmm. he posted. And I think he made that for you, Sean. Incredible work. <laughs> They are absolutely beautiful. Go check them out because it's fantastic work. They look fantastic. We really appreciate absolutely. what he did. Thank you. Then he goes on to say, Dad had actually talked about what happened when he and his uncle Kenzo tried to join the DC Superstar Society in one of his posthumously edited podcasts. And the time index for that is one hour, five minutes, and five seconds. 
And he put a link to the episode of FNW Presents, and that's a great, great listen to. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to say, I did design some new DCSSS chapter applications for Supergirl, Plastic Man, Lois Lane, and Black Orchid last year following Dad's template. For three of the four pages, it was just a matter of swapping out a few words and the stock art images. Most of the work involved writing the quizzes, which were a lot of fun. Some questions came from my dad's old Quiz Whiz Superheroes book. This is Sean talking. I remember that. I I had that. That was neat. And that's a great idea to get questions from that. You did a very good thing. Then he goes on to say, the rest came from my reading dad's collection of old comics. Ah, we can appreciate that. The best place to get it, right? Then he goes on. I was thinking of doing more faux chapter applications for Metamorpho, the Super Friends, and the first TV Flash. I know it was over a decade later, but dad had all of this neat style guide stock art for the show. Maybe someday, maybe Ultra the Multi-Alien. And then he included a page for Ultra 2. Wow. That's awesome. Thanks again, Simon. That's fantastic. Bucky749 comes by. Hello, old chums. This is Cousin Bucky and Cousin Jeremy. And Bucky then goes on in great detail to describe his picnic attire and the food he was having. So he's getting into the spirit. So thanks, Buck. That Cousin Eric then stops by with a nugget of wisdom. That Slim Jim werewolf ad was indeed drawn by Jack Davis. How about that? Davis also drew another Slim Jim ad featuring a vampire sinking his fangs into a Slim Jim around the same time. My good bat buddy, Dan Doherty, says, another excellent podcast. I don't know how you guys do it. The content, the handoffs, the joking around, the sidebars, all great. Learned a lot about Lee Elias, a name I knew, but until today would not have been able to place his work. Great job. Thanks, Dan. Rodney Tram is up next. Guys, another great episode. I haven't read this issue in a long while, so I may have to dig this up and give it a read. There are two things I have to mention. Even though I have not had one in years, I loved Zagnut Bars. Okay, there's our first, right, Sean? (laughs) Well, yeah, and and what I'm about to say next is him, not me, because he says, (laughs) toasted coconut wrapped around a crispy peanut butter bar. Since I'm allergic to chocolate, those were some of the very few candy bars that I could eat Uh, and enjoy. Some stores in the state of North Carolina had had them as far back as two decades ago, but I've not seen them in that long. The next thing, number two, DC did revive the Jason Bard character in the weekly Batman Eternal series. He was a cop who transferred from Detroit to Gotham. Through some shady means, Bard becomes commissioner after Jim Gordon was ousted. I think he had had a partnership with the villain Hush, which inevitably led to his downfall. This version of Jason Bard had not been used since. In my opinion, this is a good thing. (laughs) I prefer the private eye from the Silver and Bronze Age comics compared to this new version. Keep up the great work, guys, and I will remember to make a pasta salad next month. Yeah, thanks. Gosh, I remember I read that Batman Eternal series, and it shows how much it made an impact on me that I have no recollection of Jason Bard in there. (laughs) Future guest Martin Menza says, I remember well the fall of 1977 when this issue came in the mail. It was a new school year when I was starting seventh grade. I like how Bob Rosakis was bringing back the Cavalier and the Killer Moth over and over in this title. Batman Family really helped to make them favorite second and third tier Batman rogues for me. I agree with most of the commentators. This was not one of Jim Aparo's better covers. Shh, don't tell Rob. <laughs> Isabu comes back to the reunion. I think he might have forgotten his cooler or something. I forgot to mention. My dad had a copy of Mail Order Mysteries with the -the glow-in-the-dark cover. Sadly, (laughs) the bionic hand is not mentioned in it. Neither is the Magna Power Ring, another comic ad I saw once for a finger ring that enables you to remotely turn on and off lamps or other devices, presumably. 
That one sounded like a cool device to have. Then he and Bucky 749 traded stories of Thunder Agent comics. Yeah, I was intrigued by the mail order mystery book, Sean. I, unfortunately, it is out of print and very expensive on eBay. So I like to make little visits to used bookstores. So give me something to look for in those stores. Past guest, Batty Scottish Uncle Martin, dials in on Zoom to the reunion. I wasn't sure I'd get to the reunion today as the arrival of bat cousin Craig Boldman had me remembering the fun stories he produced for Julie Schwartz in the 80s. And I went on a back issues binge. I still smile at Jimmy Olsen blob. And how excellent to have bat cousin Jim Beard on the show. Wasn't he also a DC letter hack? Or am I just missed remembering one of a thousand thrills? <laughs> I'm with Sean. I like the cover. I think two backgrounds are orange because the shapes are meant to represent killer moths, wings, or cape. Or that could be my brain just imposing patterns. Boy, you chaps really went down a Rudolph rabbit hole there. <laughs> <laughs> the Lee Elias focus was a treat. I never knew he was a Brit. As learned Bat Cousin Rodney mentioned, Jason Bard has been revived. And what's more, after Batman Eternal, he came back to the Batgirl series for a while in the Rebirth area. He was not only redeemed, he was way hotter than Dick. And as of her final issue, number 50, she was well into him. I don't think he's been seen since. Anybody? Again, I read that one too, and I still don't remember Jason Bard. That's pretty pretty bad. <laughs> Why did Bat Uncle Bob not link Jason Bard to Steve Bard, the Golden Age Steve Lombard? It's so obvious. Turn in that ENB Memorial Typewriter, sir. Oh, and as a PS, all family members should grab the new issue of the Batman and Scooby-Doo Mysteries number five for a guest appearance by not one, not two, but three Bat Ladies. I'm pushing for it to be covered here in a very special episode. And just to help us out, he includes a link to his review. Thanks, Martin. By the way, if anybody's not checked out Martin's blog, Too Dangerous for a Girl, you should definitely check it out. Another future guest, Bat Captain Entropy, says, This was a jam-packed episode, Bat Cousins. Good thing you brought two excellent podcast guests along. There was the DC Superstar Society and the fan club swag, including the incredible Zoom-produced editions. I'm a charter member of the Superman fan club myself. Nice. Then there was the great debate over Robin's future, the Braille lessons, the crazy indoor BB gun ad, <laughs> and the hostess ad wherein Gotham's police catch the penguin with no help from the Batman. That's not even counting the two new stories. Regarding the first story, the best part for me happened off panel when Robin called Superman to help with a super prank. Here's Superman's side of the conversation. And we now present the Batman Family Reunion's Playhouse Players production of the finest nest on Nestle. Hello. Well, hey, Dick. How are things going in Gotham? Or are you at school right now? Wait, who is the Cavalier? And you want me to do what to catch him? Oh, I can absolutely help. I'm already brimming with ideas. Just give me the location and I'll handle everything. No. Thank you for letting me in on this. And don't you worry about that. I'll make time. Kara can sub for me in Metropolis. It'll be a good practice for her. See you soon. And scene. Back to Captain Entropy. There's some bizarre super dickery in the Silver Age canon. This is way better. It would be right up Clark's alley, but it doesn't make him look like a sick jerk. There have been some amazing stories about the Soup's-Bat relationship, but the Robin-Superman friendship is its own terrific thing. Clark and Dick have similar senses of humor. So this just makes all kinds of sense. Finally, on the beautifully drawn Man-Bat story, I'm confused about the bad guy's choice of weaponry. 
Snipers like to be far away because it keeps them from getting caught. So they generally use rifles. Shotguns have many fine qualities as firearms. Range is not one of them. And then Captain provides more descriptions and links regarding firearms. The murderer might prefer shotguns because they leave behind a lot less forensic evidence, especially with 70s era science. Regardless, the shotgun itself was as well rendered as everything else. The panel showing the murderer loading it from the breach was perfect. Unfortunately, he isn't trap shooting with his friends at the country club, so we're all counting on Manbat or Jason or Francine, or maybe the police captain, to save the day. See you next month, Batkin. I haven't decided what I'm bringing next month, but watermelon will be in season in May, and I'm already mm-hmm. thinking about it. Nice. Finally, the rundown on modern rabies inoculation processes was informative and fascinating. Paul, I'm sorry your daughter had to go through it, but thanks for sharing. <laughs> hey, we're in the business to help our family, Cap. Thank you very much for your comments. Next up, Bat Fashionista Lizanne Oswald says, Impressive podcast, most impressive. I think the cover is pretty decent. Definitely a good shot of Robin's backside. <laughs> the Batgirl story isn't bad, though I'm sure she's having to get replacement cycles from Bruce Wayne. After all, I can't see Barbara Gordon constantly sending a bill to her father for a new motorcycle. We're trying to write it off through Congress, although that could be. Yeah, yeah, really. The whole bit with the Cavalier and Robin is fine. It's kind of an interesting connection between the two stories without them actually interacting. Lizanne then goes on to compliment us. I had fallen asleep while listening to this. Gee, thanks, Lizanne. Oh, not a personal thing, she says. I enjoy these episodes, but I work nights. So I was using this for background noise. But I did wake up instantly when I heard a fashion critique was needed. It was almost like that scene in the first Batman movie where Bruce Wayne rises up when he sees the bat signal. (laughs) As for the Cavaliers' crimes against fashion, I can look past that and those of killer moths. After all, they are the twin towers of tackiness. Has anyone ever seen a green and blue moth? The orange, purple, and green ensemble that looks like the cheesiest version of the Three Musketeers uniform that Cavalier wears. Clearly, they are counting on being able to commit crimes by everyone killing their eyes from the god-awful outfits. (laughs) It's the perfect strategy for Killer Moth and Cavalier. Anyone with any taste will hide their eyes. On to the next story. I hate to say this after giving a glowing review to Don Heck, but this is not my favorite art by Golden. Maybe it's because it's early in his career. The typography is great. Kirk must have some impressive chest hair. (laughs) But if Jason is going to the expense and the tailoring to have the nice suit and to have his hair well done, why in the world have that green tie with the orange suit? Is it supposed to be tan? Because it looks orange. But Lizanne does make one final point. Also, Slim Jims are great. Rob McCarthy says, Why has no writer ever made Killer Moth totally badass? He's supposed to be equal to Batman. It's almost Cobra level of the idea is better than the comics. Which Siskoid says, they upped his game in the recent Lazarus Planet event. He could become a much bigger threat going forward, but expect him to stay largely up against the Batgirls. Rob McCarthy says, well, that's good. Bat cousin Matthew Davis stops by the reunion. Hello, Bat cousins. It's that magical time of the year. Yes, it's Girl Scout cookie season. I couldn't resist. (laughs) You know how persistent they are with their high pressure sales pitches. Everyone has to have some thin mints. Cool. You got someone from the letters column. I wondered if any of the contributors might hear your invites. Now, how soon before you get one of those Robin costume designers that sent in their ideas? (laughs) I'm curious to see what they think about the actual changes to the costume over the years. We'll keep trying. Yeah. I don't remember how my 10-year-old self felt about these at the time, but my present-day self liked the Man Bat story better than the Batgirl Robin story. 
it seems like Bob Rosakis had a little more freedom with Kirk and Francine than mm -hmm. he did with the lean characters. Mm -hmm. There are some artists whose work suits certain characters. For me, Michael Golden is a great fit for Man Bat, as well as Batman. By contrast, I have a hard time imagining him doing Superman. Not that the Robin Batgirl story was bad. It definitely had a 60s vibe with the competition to find the Batcave. The Cavalier and Killer Moth seem like the strangest pairing of villains, but for some reason they work well together. Cavalier would have been a great addition to the 60s Batman TV show. I'm trying to think who would have been a good actor to play him. Most 70s moment had to be Jason's orange three-piece suit. So that's the third person to comment on Jason's suit. <laughs> I guess we missed that one. Complete with those big lapels and wide green tie and most likely made of the finest polyester of the time. Anyone who has watched TV shows from the 70s knows that is pretty true to life. And then Matthew comes back to add, I just wanted to add something that I wondered about and finally had a chance to look up. The month before this issue hits the stands, we saw the debut of a new member of the Batman family, someone who will be appearing in future issues. Helena Wayne, the Huntress of Earth 2, made her first appearance in All-Star Comics number 69, and her origin was published in DC Superstars number 17, both cover dated November-December 77 and released in August of 1977. Also, that month saw a total of 12 Richie Riches. <laughs> oh oh matthew we will have something to say about the huntress next issue so Absolutely. hang on hang on to your back towel next up brett michael young says hi back cousins i brought a big pitcher of kool-aid please enjoy some room temperature sugar liquid with orange slices floating in it while a swarm of bees surround the table <laughs> on to the issue at hand not a bad cover i don't worship at the altar of jim aparo like many at the reunions but i usually like his work one nitpick on Mr. Aparo's art. Washington, D.C. doesn't have high-rise buildings, but I guess I could no-prize it that Batgirl is swinging by Arlington. <laughs> when I saw the villains, my first response was, oh no, not these clowns again. But the story was so ridiculous, they work in this context. I appreciate Cavalier and Killer Moth put up nice framed posters of Batgirl and Robin to use for <laughs> stabbing practice. But move the entry table out of the way. If you scratch up the table, where will you put the scented candle and the marble bowl for your evil car keys? <laughs> Think, guys. I love the ingenuity of Killer Moth randomly hanging onto flagpoles and telephone wires for no real purpose other than to snicker. This guy is truly committed to the craft of being a dope. Now, this is Sean. We know I love villains that have a clear-cut theme, distinct theme. So I agree with Brett Michael Young right here. We go back to him with, it was only fitting that Batgirl handed him his lunch without working up a sweat. The Cavalier's sleuth skills are remarkable, parking his purple sedan directly behind Robin's motorcycle while dressed like a musketeer is a brilliant way to stay <laughs> under the radar. And then, following closely on that death trap of a winding road in the country, really sells that he's out there to enjoy the foliage and not track Robin. Bravo, sir. Finally, are there only two cops in the DC universe? It looks like the same two guys get slimed by Killer Moth in DC, stand by while Commissioner Gordon gets smacked in Gotham, and then finally work with Johnny Quest guy in New Carthage. No wonder the costumed heroes have to handle everything. Maybe all the rest of the cops are mannequins, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on the train. Yeah. <laughs> the Man Bad story was legitimately riveting. I'm reading along with you guys, so I don't want to jump ahead, but this cliffhanger was great. Michael Golden is a phenomenal artist. He's in the Adam Hughes, Kevin Maguire, Steve Lytle sphere of great artists who I wish could have done a longer run on a series. Golden has one of the most unique styles ever, combining realistic comic art and exaggerating cartooning. His art feels alive. Consider that car waxed. Ah, 
DC Editorial does it once again by exciting all the kids with a memo. That'll teach them not to fill out their TPS reports. This is Sean. I have no idea what that means, so feel free to let me know. Okay, time to run. Great Aunt Hazel spilled Kool-Aid on herself and is being chased by 200 bees and a raccoon into the duck pond. I better fish her out before her giant white orthopedic shoes fill with water and drag her to the bottom. Thanks, Brett. Thanks. Oh, that superstar podcaster and past and future guest, Chris Franklin, had this to say. Man, I'm so late this time. There's nothing left here but paper plates piled up in the trash can. (laughs) Not much more to add other than Jim is always a great guest and it was a pleasure to hear from Craig. I think he should take credit for Nightwing. Hey, other people have contributed less to comic characters and gotten credit for it. The cover, I hate to admit it, but yeah, as much as I love Jim Aparo, this indeed does look very rushed. Hey, it happens. Jim was probably real busy that month. Batgirl and Robin stories. Man, I really struggle with Joe Giella. There are qualities to his inking I like, and he's a seminal Silver Age inker at DC. But man, he's one of the most overpowering inkers ever in the history of comics. I see very little of Lee Elias here. Just look at the human fly gallery and compare the artwork. It doesn't even seem to be by the same guy. That's a great point, Chris. And if anybody hasn't checked out Max's human fly show, it's terrific. If you want to see some more Lee Elias art, go to one of those galleries. He did a number of issues there. And back to Chris, man bat, Michael is indeed golden. Enough said. (laughs) Well, we won't keep our listeners in suspense anymore. Our fearless network leader, Bat Cousin Rob, did indeed come back to the reunion. We got fired. (laughs) He had these final words. Okay, guys. You lured me back into the episode. Thanks for the Lee Elias bio and the requisite respect Ultra the multi-alien deserves. Those Michael Golden Manbat pages are so beautiful. I had no idea the DC Superheroes Checkers game was so valuable. I got it as a kid, loved it, and bought it again a few years later. I'll never part with it. Unless someone wants to make me a really good offer. <laughs> One last thing. There will be no more Jim Aparo's slander on this network. If it happens again, you guys should see if the Two True Freaks network has an open slot. You got it, Rob. We hear and obey. Phew. Thanks for all the comments, everybody. We are so happy that you're engaged with the podcast. Keep them coming. We will make sure to make even more potato salad so we don't run out next time. So thank you very much. Okay. Now we're going to talk about the Batman family members who shared our puck. Well, I mean, we're not going to talk about them. We're going to acknowledge them, the people who liked and shared on social networks. <laughs> From Facebook, we have Don Lindbergh, Doug Game Master, Jim Beard. Hey, I know that guy. Chris Franklin, Alan Williams, Brian Linton, Herschel Minas, Jay Campbell, Mike Richards, Terry O'Malley, Paul Wildenberger, Mike Thomas, and Clinton Robinson. And then from the Twitter side of the street, we'll start with the networks, and that's Mountain Comics, For All Mankind SF, Treasury Comics, Siskoid, Firestorm Fan, Fire and Water Network, Irredeemable Shag, and my beloved Digest Cast. And then also Con L, Lizanne Oswald, Brian Shufo, Between the Pages Blog, Martin Gray, Michael Thomas, Chris, Trucker Talk, Dr. Pop Culture BGSU, Jim Beard, Ward Hill Terry, Don Fogel, Comics Mogul, Andrew Lorenz, Rodney Trainum, Doc Strange, and Justin Steiner. Thanks, everyone. It's fantastic. Great reading of different things that they shared and posted. We really appreciate it. Yeah, and one last thing. Craig Boldman put a little write-up and a link to our show that he shared us on his website. So if you haven't checked out his website, one more pitch for that. It's simply craigboldman.com. 
But before we sign off, most of our listeners know that Running the Fire and Water Podcast Network has gotten more costly over the years as more and more shows were added. So if you're enjoying what you hear on this show or any of the other shows, please consider becoming a patron. We're not all Bruce Wayne, but any small amount you can give helps defray the cost and keep Robin and Jason Bard in burgers. <laughs> to find out how, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. And thanks. That will do it for the feedback section of this episode and for episode 16 overall. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will join us next month when Batman Family becomes a beloved dollar comic. Yeah.